Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. David Swindle, former senior investigating officer of Strathclyde Police, as it was then. Uh, I was a detective superintendent uh, in the police. I was an experienced senior investigating officer. Uh, I was involved in uh, exercises like Cutty Sark and other investigations about the potential terrorism uh, at uh, airports. So, ten years ago, ten years ago, I can remember very clearly, and it's something I'll never forget. That was the time that Peter Tobin had been convicted of Angelica Klook's murder. It was the time where there was changes in politics in Scotland, significant changes. And for me, this was when the Glasgow airport terrorist attack happened. Sitting in my house, watching TV, watching a burning vehicle, my telephone rings thereafter. That summer for me was gone. Finished. From Media Scotland, I'm Chris Mooney and this is Criminal Record. Last time on Criminal Record. Breaking news this evening, a blazing car has been driven into Glasgow Airport this afternoon. A terrorist attack on one of the country's busiest airports. We stand proud and then you come to Glasgow, Glasgow doesn't accept us, do you know what I mean? This is Glasgow, you know, so yeah, we'll say it about you, you know, that's it. In episode two, we'll hear about the immediate aftermath of that attack and the hunt for those behind the UK plots. Following events nationally in the last 48 hours, police now are conducting additional patrols. That is that there are links to Pakistan. Caught fire on impact. You know, the two cases uh, in Scotland and the UK indicate that this is unsophisticated terrorism. And because they are highly determined, resilient and innovative, they will likely, you know, rethink of new ways to, uh, to perpetrate successful attacks in the future. That London is no longer the only target on the terrorist hit list and that takes the perceived threat to a whole new level. Bilal Abdullah and Kafil Ahmed's attempted killing spree had been stopped by the efforts of the police, airport staff and members of the public, and just as importantly by the amateur mistakes they made in their rush to create a three-pronged terror attack in London and Glasgow. While history will remember them as being at the forefront of a new form of terror, the pair bungled their way to ignominy. The Mercedes cars parked outside Tiger Tiger nightclub and a nearby bus stop, which were full of petrol-soaked gas canisters, failed to explode because of sloppy wiring. Abdullah and Ahmed rang the mobile phone detonators inside each car on a number of occasions, but nothing happened. The gas and petrol fumes that had built up inside the vehicles had also effectively acted as a smothering blanket against any spark. 
The next day, they had erratically driven their 30-year-old Cherokee Jeep towards Terminal 1 at Glasgow Airport. Most probably a lack of forward planning as they rushed to complete the task contributed to the driver cutting in towards the terminal too soon, knocking over and dragging a street sign as they raced towards the airport. The sign slowed them down and caused Ahmed to ram the jeep into a concrete stanchion instead of one of the many glass windows and doors at the front of the building. There was a determined effort to drive that vehicle into the airport and injure people if it wasn't for the stanchion at that door. There would be fatalities. You can see the number of people that were there and they knew it that day. If it wasn't for the stanchion, I'm convinced there would have been fatalities and serious injuries. Ken McCaskill, what was the Justice Secretary, I recall it well. Had the driver not been so nervous and failed to make the appropriate cut, he would have got the vehicle in. Had he got the vehicle in, then the nature of the layout of the building, it could have been a cataclysmic incident. So I think we were remarkably fortunate. But equally, I think sometimes in Scotland we don't realise just how fortunate we were, because had he managed to get in and detonate that, then you know we could have been looking at a lot of death. The attacks may have been thwarted, but the drama didn't end there. The hours immediately after would see an international manhunt and bomb threats emerge elsewhere in Scotland. When I arrived at Glasgow Airport, I was faced with organised chaos. Before I got there, the police had arranged firearms cordons. The crime scene, the vehicle was still burning. And you go there faced with massive amounts of information and challenges. So, as it unfolded, we identified where the bomb factory was in Newt Crescent in Houston. A detective inspector was appointed, Andy McWilliam was his name, he was appointed in charge of that. That was a very important role there because that was would reveal other evidence, uh, you know, where component parts were purchased and movements and in, in other associates of these two individuals. We had Bobby Shaw at the uh, crime scene managing that um, and that went on there with his skills and a team round about him because we also had the other thing at the airport was when that vehicle was driven towards it, people dropped their luggage and ran. So we had that. We also have a situation where there is potential that someone linked to terrorists is within the airport waiting to board the plane. So with a mass evacuation of 4,000 people under control conditions taken from the airport and thanks to the local authority and the bus buses, they were taken to the Scottish Exhibition Conference Centre and interviewed by a team of officers. The mass evacuation included some 1,250 passengers sitting on 11 jets outside the building, many of whom had to endure seven hours trapped in the cabins. You can imagine just how uncomfortable that would have been, especially when the air conditioning started to shut down. While everyone was off their plane by 9.30pm, the operation went on into the night, as buses taking passengers for a debriefing at the Scottish Exhibition and Conference Centre a few miles away waited for a police escort. Former Scotland international football team manager Alex McLeish and TV pundit Davy Proven were among the passengers evacuated. 
The intelligence gathering operation was now at full speed, and the hospital, home, and even the taxi firm Abdullah had used in particular were put under intense scrutiny. His home in the small village of Houston in Renfrewshire was found to be the centre of operations, the bomb factory. Searches of the house threw up crucial evidence and clues to a wider conspiracy. But what happened to Abdullah and Ahmed? Well, dramatic video footage taken by airport staff and passengers at the time shows Abdullah huckled into the back of an ambulance with a heavy police guard before he was taken to a specialist terrorist holding cell at Govan Police Station in Glasgow. Despite suffering third-degree burns in the failed attack and being blinded by CS spray used by police, his clothes are still intact and he's moving freely, walking alongside a police officer to the waiting ambulance. You can also see in a video, Ahmed, by now naked, blackened and covered in burns. He can be seen handcuffed on the ground by two police officers, large red marks obvious all over his charred body. He is then dragged along the covered walkway outside Terminal 1. Handcuffed and subdued, the 28-year-old was rushed to the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley, clinging to a life he had so desperately tried to extinguish less than an hour before. Ironically, Abdullah had worked as a doctor at the very same hospital. If the explosion had been successful, the injured would have been transferred to the Royal Alexandra. They chose to drive that vehicle into Glasgow Airport the day, first day of the school holidays where people would be going on their holidays. These were professional individuals. Bilal Abdullah was a doctor. He was a doctor at the local Royal Alexandria Hospital which perversely would have been where any casualties would have gone. Kafi Lamin was an academic, he was an engineer. These are professional individuals and they were determined to cause terror and harm to people of the anti kingdom While the intelligence operation continued and the terrorists were now in custody, there was still the small matter of making the airport safe and diffusing the volatile jeep, no longer green, but grey and smouldering half-in and half-out Terminal 1. Sergeant Stevie Jack was a bomb disposal expert who had experience in the field. He had defused bombs in Afghanistan, Iraq and Northern Ireland. Sergeant Jack, then 33, was putting his feet up at Army HQ in Craigie Hall in Edinburgh when he received a call from his control room in Didcot, in Oxfordshire. Strathclyde police wanted him to head to their HQ in the city's Pitt Street and Sharpish. He was to bring his ordnance disposal vehicle, better known as the bomb truck, but to wear plain clothes and not his normal army camouflage gear. They didn't want to draw attention to him. Bit late for that. Sergeant Jack was then escorted by police to Glasgow Airport. It was the first time he'd been put in sole charge of an incident. His description of events was worth hearing, so we've asked an actor to read it out. There was no time for a briefing that I had to go right away and make the jeep safe. I'd been told by the police not to wear military uniform because they didn't want me to attract too much attention. The task came thick and fast on the day, and I then had to leave the jeep to go to the hospital to make it explosively safe, and then actually return to the jeep. I told you the drama wasn't over. Sergeant Jack was scrambled to the Royal Alexandra 
as the hospital was being evacuated. Kafil Ahmed was in a critical condition, and as medics removed what little clothing remained on him, they panicked. They'd uncovered what looked like a long, white suicide belt and a vial of a suspicious-looking powder. Two suspicious vehicles, a BMW and a Vauxhall Corsa, thought to belong to the bombers, were also found in the hospital car park. They were later blown up by controlled explosions. I was the guy responsible for taking the belt from the accident and emergency out to a cricket field uh, nearby where I disposed of it safely. Witness Angela Doherty, a minibus driver, watched the events at the hospital unfold. We've asked an actor to read out her interview to a newspaper at the time about the events. I was driving to the hospital when a police officer told me I could not go in. As I was turning the vehicle round, I could see a man dressed all in black running down the hill from the hospital. He was holding a container out in front of him. There were another ten or so police officers behind him and more hospital staff behind him. I had my window open and could hear them shouting, run for your fucking life. I put my foot in the gas and got out of there as quick as I could. Sergeant Jack then made the mad dash back to the airport to finish off his work on the jeep. After the fire service had put out the blaze, I looked back at the vehicle and I could clearly see those gas canisters. I then saw loads of items in the vehicle which you wouldn't normally see. We had an indication that this vehicle had been in terrorist hands and my job was to make it explosively safe. Jack spent the next four hours detonating explosives in the jeep to end the threat, but didn't sleep for 72 hours as he directed the operation. Glasgow Airport had its own challenges because I was very young, I'd not long qualified as a bomb disposal operator, I was my first major incident as the number one, you know, the person in charge. It's not something I normally reflect on. Uh, that's what we do day to day, that's, that's our job. After Glasgow Airport, Sergeant Jack did further tours of Afghanistan and Iraq. While in Helmand province, he detonated 70 devices on one tour of duty, 30 while under Taliban fire. Now 43, his bravery, skills and dedication have been recognised with a series of promotions. Meanwhile, back in Glasgow, the threat may have been extinguished, but the airport was still a scene of carnage. For Brian Sweeney, Chief Officer of Strathclyde Fire and Rescue in 2007, Incident 156-99072, logged at 3.13pm on June the 30th, was one of 145 call-outs for Strathclyde Fire crews that day. The blaze from the Glasgow Airport terrorist attack appeared in the area log of Renfrew Fire Station, sandwiched between a rubbish fire and a suspected gas leak. Sweeney was in the cinema watching Shrek 2 with his nine-year-old son Ryan when his pager went off. I remember there were people walking up the... Do you know the slip road from the airport up the M8 motorway? There was actually people walking up the M8 slip road onto the motorway carrying suitcases. And I remember thinking, that's bizarre. Fire crews had blocked the jeep from the front with fire trucks, putting their own lives at risk to protect the public in case any bomb went off thinking the engines would take the worst of the blast. Inside the airport, fire crews tore the canopy and false ceiling down to make sure there were no smouldering embers inside the structure. 
Sweeney had the onerous task of having to assess the situation from all angles, including going inside the terminal building, where he was met with an empty airport filled with abandoned suitcases. It was like a scene from the rapture. As the sprinklers were going off and as I was making my way through those pillars, an announcement came over the loudspeaker system. I'm assuming they're automated and it said, um, for, for, for the attention of all passengers, it said any baggage which is left unattended will be removed and might be destroyed. Repeat message playing in my ear as I'm trying to navigate my way behind a pillar to have a look at a car that's got a bomb in it and I'm looking at one and a half to two thousand uh, unattended bags. It was the strangest, strangest thing that's ever happened in my career. Everything shut down. There's still people wandering in different bits of the airport, not knowing what was happening. 40 minutes after I arrived, there was a strange mood amongst them, almost that, that we had been under attack. As the clear-up operation continued, police and intelligence services were piecing together a case they believed pointed to a terrorist cell responsible for planning the attacks. The bungled London car bombs had left investigators a host of clues. The mobile phones that failed to trigger the two cars in London furnished detectives with a series of telephone numbers. The cars themselves, which were intact, provided DNA samples, fibres and fingerprints. Deputy Assistant Commissioner John McDowell of the Metropolitan Police said, and I quote, We felt we were very, very close, and I think they themselves must have felt that closeness too, because they would have known what they had left behind in the vehicle. Obviously, that was a huge help to us. By 11.30am on Friday, June the 29th, the day before the Glasgow attack, police mounted a surveillance operation against a man they believed had planned and financed the bombings. Detectives were ready and waiting for 26-year-old Dr Muhammad Asha outside his home in Newcastle under Lyme in Staffordshire. The nervous and agitated Asha was tailed for almost 10 hours as police watched him go about his day. His 27-year-old lab technician wife Marwa and their two-year-old son were in the back seat of the white Mazda car as he did his rounds. But they weren't medical rounds. His first stop was to visit some friends and then he would later travel to a nearby supermarket where he furtively dumped a black bin liner into a communal red wheelie bin. All this time, police were recording his actions and generally considered his demeanour to be suspicious. Police officers operating the sting then followed Asha and his family to an Asda supermarket where he threw out another black bag in a bottle bank and emptied a white plastic bag into a paper bank. They would later collect the bins and find papers and smashed CDs containing jihadi material. By 9pm, the police felt they had enough to act and arrested Asha and his wife in a dramatic swoop on the northbound M6 motorway. The intelligence operation and its stretch extended to the other side of the world after Glasgow, at least 13 men being scooped up in a bid to expose the terror cell behind the failed attacks. Two unnamed men arrested in Paisley on July the 1st, 2007, were medical students, believed to be from Saudi Arabia and working at the Royal Alexandra. Another two men, never publicly identified, were arrested at an industrial estate in Blackburn, Lancashire, as the manhunt continued. Later held under drug laws, police confirmed the pair were no longer being treated as terror suspects.
One man was then arrested by police investigating a suspected bag at Stansted Airport. Officers said bomb disposal experts were called to dispose of a bag found near the entrance shortly before 7pm on the Saturday. On the other side of the world, it was more members of the medical profession who were caught up in the dragnet. In Australia, several unnamed doctors were quizzed by cops in the aftermath of the attack. There were no arrests, but computers were taken from Western Australia hospitals, two in Perth and two in Kalgoorlie. Four doctors, believed to be Indian and reportedly past workers in the UK's health system, were questioned and released, while another was interrogated in New South Wales. At this time, Dr Mohammed Hanif, now 37, was detained at Brisbane Airport on July 2nd, 2007, as he prepared to board a flight to his Indian homeland. He had lived in Britain for several years and was working as a doctor in Queensland. Dr Hanif was held for 12 days without charge, causing public outcry in Australia and India, before being formally accused of supporting a terrorist organisation. But investigators had wrongly concluded that his mobile phone SIM card linked him to the Glasgow plot. Charges were dropped on July the 27th, and he later launched a civil suit over the, quotes, traumatic experience, winning a six-figure compensation deal in 2010. Meanwhile, another doctor was arrested in the Lime Street area of Liverpool on the Saturday evening. His name was Dr Sabil Ahmed. You'll by now recognise his surname, Ahmed, yes, the brother of Glasgow Airport bomber, Kafil. Sabil would later appear at the Old Bailey the following year. The court-haired Indian-born Sabil got a text from his brother half an hour before he drove the Cherokee into the terminal building, telling him to read an email. Two hours later, Ahmed read the message, asking him to tell police Kafil was abroad in the hope it would delay his body's identification. Kafil was clearly expected to die in a blaze of glory. Sabil then lied to detectives for three days. It earned him 18 months in jail and he was deported on his release. Back in Scotland, Justice Secretary Kenny McCaskill was at pains to prevent revenge attacks on the local Muslim community. He confirmed to the public that the perpetrators of the airport attack had been here for some time, but were most definitely not Scots. remained in the incident room until into the evening uh, on the, the, the Saturday. Uh, the following day, on the Sunday, a government car came, took me, went through to Glasgow to see the locust, to speak with police and had uh, meetings with officers because there was still a potential threat that there were other gangs out there looking to do similar attacks. And I met with officers at Pitt Street as it was then. There was a meeting at uh, the mosque in Glasgow because there was a lot of concern amongst the Islamic community uh, about both where the attack had come from and threats towards them. I recall being in the central mosque at uh, Glasgow and Assistant Chief Constable he was then, John Nielsen, was quite outstanding. He made it quite clear to the, uh, uh, the worshippers that it wasn't one of their young people because there had been concerns about that that they need have no concerns about any retribution or attack, that wouldn't be countenanced, and the police were there to pursue those who carried this out, but to protect those who were uh, just ordinary citizens going about. So I remember Big John, he was quite outstanding in that, and a lot of credit goes there. The authorities were left reflecting on a job well done, but they weren't stupid enough to ignore the fact they'd been helped by the incompetence of the bombers.
The investigations regarding the Glasgow Airport terrorist attack and Tiger Tiger attacks in London is something that I'll never forget being involved in that. The fast-moving situation and then going into not slow time but a more structured situation with the instant room and working with metropolitan police officers. In that instant room, there was hundreds of people working in this inquiry throughout the UK. There was different aspects to it. The CCTV, which is very important with movements. There was a computer analyst type of thing to do with a, a hard drive, a, a damage, a laptop that was found in the burning vehicle. There was every expert involved. This was something that for me, I remember as being amazing joint work between police forces and local authority and the fire service at the very start. It was something that is amazing. And we have to say that, you know, yes, there was speculation uh, and some reporting about jurisdictional issues, but that never affected the professionalism of the detectives from London and Scotland that were working in that investigation. It went on for some months. Uh, for me, that summer was gone. Um, but it's something I'm proud of, that I contributed to it, and I was able to make a difference. Every time I see articles and TV and read it in the media about terrorist attacks that sadly have happened in recent weeks, it makes me reflect back to my role in Glasgow Airport. Times have changed. A lot has been learned. But sadly, there are still people that are intent in causing harm and bringing terror to the UK. I like to think that Glasgow Airport, there was no fatalities, fortunately, was something that a lot of lessons were learned from. It's at this point, just days after the attacks, there was a changing of the guard. The emergency crews who had responded so bravely would step aside and let the lawyers take charge. Prosecutors had a case to make against suicide bombers who were actually still alive. Abdullah would most certainly face a court date along with his co-accused Mohammed Asher, but Ahmed's future was less certain. He was initially treated at the Royal Alexandra Hospital, but was transferred to Glasgow Royal Infirmary within a few days of the attack. The severity of his injuries led some medical experts to predict he would never survive. Some said he might not even live a week after the incident. In the days after the attack, one of the medical team who had treated him said his condition was, quotes, beyond repair. He had been in a coma since the incident. Most Burns experts believed he was effectively dead despite efforts to treat him with expensive shark skin implants. Despite the huge sum of public money spent keeping him alive, estimated to be around £5,000 a day, Ahmed would never face justice. On the 2nd of August, a month after the terror attack in Glasgow, the driver of the Jeep Cherokee, Kafil Ahmed, died.
Criminal Record was produced and edited by Kirsty McKenzie and written and narrated by Chris Mooney of Media Scotland. Special thanks to Paul O'Hare, Andy Phillip, Sally Hind, Jennifer Highland, John Ferguson and Torco Crichton. <laughs>